Welcome back to the Dayson Digest. This is Schaefer Spires, medical director for Dayson, and I am here again with our awesome fellow, Ronaldo Perez. Uh, today we are recording on May 9th, and today is actually my last time I get to record a, a, a podcast with, with Dr. Perez because I am going to be gone in a month. Uh, and let me just say this, Ray, uh, this year has been an absolute pleasure with me, for me, that we have gotten to spend at least one day a week with you, walking the wards, doing stewardship rounds, and we've gotten to know each other uh, pretty well, and you've helped me do a lot of projects, and uh, I really hope this is not your last time uh, doing this podcast, nor uh, working with Dayson or anything in stewardship uh, realm. So today we're going to talk about this new article that just came out in JAMA. The title of the article is Piperacillin Tazobactam compared with Cefoxitin as an antimicrobial prophylaxis for pancreatoduodenectomy or Whipple. This is a randomized controlled trial and it is published online April 20th, 2023 in JAMA Original. Uh, Ray, this is a, a fantastic article, and I'm pretty excited to talk about it. There, it is, as many uh, potentially practice-changing articles, not without some level of controversy and fun discussion topics. Let's hear it, man. Yeah, I think this is kind of continues in a theme we've been talking a lot about in a microbial surgical prophylaxis on several podcasts and other venues. I think it really is an area where stewardship teams can have a huge impact. So there's set the stage a little bit here. And I, this is something I have to admit that I didn't fully appreciate before reading this article, but Wibble procedures continue to be plagued by really high rates of infectious complications. And so in their background, they're describing that when you look at case series across the country in terms of how often do we see infectious complications of uh, Whipple procedures, Despite using what is currently guideline recommended perioperative antibiotic prophylaxis administered correctly, they were still seeing rates of surgical site infection approaching 30% in patients uh, after a Whipple procedure. Uh, so, really, I agree. It is such a complicated, morbid uh, procedure. I mean, if, if there's obviously any way to avoid it, uh, I don't think anybody would undergo. But I, I agree. It is, it's hard to see those numbers, right? even though we do see these patients in the hospital often. Yeah, it's not a lot of surgeries that we would just accept one out of three of our patients coming down with an infection afterwards. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, because of that, you know, there's a lot of interest in thinking about what can we do to try to make this better? And that's really what prompted this RCT. There had been some retrospective observational data suggesting, I know the guidelines currently recommend a first or second generation cephalosporin as your perioperative prophylaxis, but there's a lot of stuff that's in the gut. Should we consider being a little bit broader? And that's what this trial was hoping to address. And so they put together a multi-center, but open label phase three randomized clinical trial. So they did have randomization, but uh, it was unblinded. And a really interesting thing about this study was that they compiled all the trial data pretty much exclusively using the uh, NISQIP database the, from the American College of Surgeons. And so the idea here being, we are already collecting all this quality data nationally for other projects that are going on. Can we utilize this system that's already in place to do an RCT um, in a slightly more cost-effective and efficient way since we're not building a separate data infrastructure? 
for the sake of this trial. Um, so I think that was another big and interesting point about the study. One we'll, we'll definitely talk about is could this be a model for continuing to look at these outcomes and be able to study these types of interventions moving forward? Yeah, fantastic database that uh, I know people access often in their own hospitals for uh, quality improvement projects, et cetera. And uh, there's been several national studies using this database, uh, but not quite to this level of, uh, of rigor, quite frankly. So I, I agree with you, a novel mechanism that is uh, potentially, uh, this trial is a, a good example of, of a, a cool way to be able to use it. So who are the patients they actually looked at? So our inclusion criteria, so they looked at adults 18 older who are undergoing elective pancreatoduodenectomy as well procedure for any indication. They did have a number of important exclusion criteria, though. They uh, did not include anyone who had active infection going in. They did not include anyone who had received antibiotics within seven days of their primary surgical procedure. They excluded anyone with long-term steroid use, long-term dialysis, or significant renal dysfunction. So anyone with a creatinine clearance less than 40. So again, a, a focus on healthier patients. They were getting this for an elective indication, but ones who were going in um, uh, in a decent spot. And they took those patients and they randomized them one-to-one -to, -one to receive either the standard of care, which in this case uh, was cefoxetin being the drug of choice versus piperacillin and tazobactam as their perioper perioperative antibiotic. Um, but they also had a, a step in that randomization that they stratified these patients by the presence or absence of a biliary stents, a known big risk factor for infections. They tried to make sure they had equivalent numbers of patients with biliary stents in both of these groups. Now, as with usual recommendations for our perioperative uh, antibiotics, this was just a single dose within 60 minutes of incision, um, but they did recommend follow-up doses to keep therapeutic levels during the case and until closure. And they actually were really good about ensuring that antibiotics ended within 24 hours of close of incision. So that was a, a written into their trial protocol and they followed that closely and people largely kept to it over like 97% in both groups, the antibiotics were off by 24 hours. Now, I think it's really important as we're talking about these, this randomization, the inclusion and exclusion criteria to note that there was kind of a, a tough thing about this trial that there was a really high rate of patients excluded from each arm of the study after the randomization. So 105 patients in the Piptazid group and 84 in the Cefoxin group, they had been assigned to get those drugs as their perioperative antibiotic. But then between that randomization step and them actually moving forward to surgery, uh, they ended up not undergoing the surgery. Um, this was mostly because uh, patients had unresectable tumors uh, associated with their pancreas. So the idea that the surgeon went in with the intention to do a Whipple, but they saw just how involved an important vascular structure is, or um, the degree of progression was further than they had anticipated. They were no longer candidates for that surgery, and they had to abort the procedure and just immediately close. It happened a lot in both groups, but a little bit disproportionately more so in, a, in the in the potato group, and does very much impact that randomization since so many of these people end up not actually moving forward with the surgery. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's uh, you always hate having to exclude patients, uh, especially just the more complicated one, because you want to be able to generalize it to patients that we're seeing, right? Like that's, that's kind of hurts people like us trying to interpret these results. However, 
you know, the the purpose of these types of exclusions for a trial like this is to get a homogenous group such that you can compare the actual intervention. And uh, so you, there's a little bit of a trade-off sometimes, I think, with with trying to make the cohort so homogenous such that it, there's, there's very few variables that can be considered uh, uh, confounders so that you can actually measure what the effect of the intervention is doing versus trying to be somebody that's uh, overly generalizable. You know, it's a, it's a give and take for sure. Yeah, and you know, at the end of the day, high-low solution from both groups and don't really expect this to have changed the overall outcome too much, but I do think just an important point given that so much happened post-randomization there. Mm -hmm. So what were we actually looking for? So the primary endpoint they used was development of a surgical site infection within 30 days of the surgical procedure. This was a composite of superficial, deep, and organ space infections. And then they did secondary endpoints, um, an analysis looking at some general quality metrics, such as 30-day mortality, sepsis, drain placement, C. diff infection, hospital readmission, length of stay. And then they also looked at one specific endpoint to pancreatic surgery, and that was development of a pancreatic fistula. What did they actually find looking at these? Very interestingly, they actually stopped the trial early at a second interim analysis uh, based on their predetermined endpoint for superiority for Peptazo. By the time they called it in the trial, they enrolled 778 patients that were included in that final analysis. Um, the two groups were well-matched. Um, they did notice some more dosing violations in the Peptazo group, but these were entirely due to the re repeat doses being late, so that actually would have biased towards um, Peptazo not performing as well. Um, and despite those considerations, the time of trial stoppage, 19.8% um, of the patients receiving Peptazo developed a surgical site infection while 32.8% of the patients receiving cefoxitin developed uh, a surgical site in infection within 30 days. So that's an absolute risk reduction of 13%, and their odds ratio was 0.5. So overall, you reduced your risk of developing a surgical site infection in half by yeah. choosing Piptazo over cefoxitin, and with a pretty good confidence interval there too, really pretty tightly yeah, around 0.5. It's remarkable, right? Yeah, uh, there, there, there's not many things that seem to be able to do just that with just one one drug, right? Yeah. How about the secondary? Really, outcomes? really impressive changes. And then the secondary outcomes of note here: so patients receiving Piptazo were less likely to have develop sepsis. So four uh, and a half percent of patients in the Piptazo group versus seven and a half percent in the Cefoxitin group. They saw a lot less C. diff colitis um, in the Piptazo group. So only 0.3% of patients receiving Piptazo developed C. diff, while 3.5% of patients receiving cefoxitin developed C. diff infection. And then one outcome that the surgeons were particularly concerned about being postoperative pancreatic fistula was also significantly less in the Piptazo group. So 12.7% in the Piptazo group versus 19% in the cefoxitin group. So again, odds ratio there of almost half uh, in terms of reduction in uh, post-operative pancreatic fistulas. And when, when they looked at all the different subgroups, so they're saying stent, no stent, across different ages, it was a fairly consistent trend looking at their forest plot. I mean, you just saw that really everything was falling, you know, except for a few subgroups where they just only had a few patients, so they had really large confidence intervals. 
we were seeing this seemed to be beneficial all the way across. Um, so, I mean, the data seemed pretty impressive overall. Like you were saying, not a lot of studies where you get to see this magnitude of effect anymore. So what, what, do, you, what do you really think is going on here? I mean, these, these are huge. Have we just been missing something with, by narrowing to uh, cephalosporins? Is, what's the magic of the piptazo? Is it, is it truly just the magic of the piptazo? Do you think something else is going on? That's the question, right? Like I, I, I'm here yet. Like first of all, you know, the authors suggest that you know the enterococcus coverage for the zosin, which is kind of the obvious hole from zosin compared to cefoxetin. Uh, but that that's not the only hole that that cefoxetin doesn't cover. Uh, you know, the, a lot of the ESBL producers and gram-negative bacteria. Uh, bacteria also are covered can be covered by those and it's not covered by this second generation cephalosporin. I mean cefoxetin, you know, I mean you and I have been talking about this for a couple of days now, but I, I, we don't like cefoxetin and there's multiple reasons for that. Uh, and, and quite frankly, I think most of our hospitals in Dason tend to use cefazolin over cefoxetin. And then if you need the anaerobic coverage, we add the metronidazole. Metronidazole has much better anaerobic coverage than cefoxetin does, and it has the the you get the first generation cephalosporin and cefazolin has better gram positive coverage as well as some gram negative coverage there. And so we don't tend to use cefoxetin very often. The other reason is we don't like it is if you if you use cefazolin, then everyone in the OR gets used to that dose adjustment for weight, you know, two grams to three grams, uh, you know, at, at the cutoff, I think 120 kilograms. And then they, they understand that infusion rate. They understand where that cefoxetin, I mean, the cefazolin sits. And they also know what the, uh, the timing for redosing is uh, for cefazolin. All that becomes kind of, standard uh in rote memory whereas if you have these few random procedures that are uh using cefoxetin that's a 1500 milligram dose that doesn't change based on weight which i don't know if that's correct or not and maybe that should be considered and then the redosing uh, interval for cefoxetin is also different than cefazolin so there's logistical reasons why we like to have cefazolin moving and then the other thing is that the anaerobic coverage for cefoxetin is just not that great. And so, you know, the comparison to me, I could have told you that I feel like piptazofoxetin is is not, you know, there, there's a clear difference there. But to have this kind of clinical outcome uh, data, I mean, that, that is remarkable. And I really wish we had some more information here to to kind of answer that why. And I think that like we mentioned at the very beginning here, we've got this parsimonious model or mechanism to do a trial using data that we're already collecting in this registry. Uh, and you and, and by doing that in such a, an efficient way, you end up having to sacrifice some of these other uh, things like gathering culture data, which is, you know, okay to start with. It's it, now it's giving us something to think about. And I think quite frankly, I can't say it any differently, but this is a practice changing study. Now, whether or not that means we need to all turn around, those of us who are doing pancreatic duodenectomies, do we need to just start using Zosin instead of Cefoxetin or instead of Cefazolin metronidazole? I'm not sure that that's the case. And I, I think we can, uh, we should talk about that.
Yeah. So why don't we get into that a little bit? So you're saying you're making up the really good point that how much of this effect we're seeing is because they chose a comparator that was that the right comparator uh, in, in terms of if this is a drug that we already, if Suboxone is a drug that we already don't feel great about, you know, is that, would that comparison be the same to uh, Cefazolin and Metronidazole? We were talking about this with our pharmacy team in that Cefoxacin so in itself has a really high association with C. diff. And so in our institution, we moved away from the use of Cefoxacin almost a decade ago and saw our C. diff rates go down substantially just with that one change and still sticking with the first generation cephalosporin um, that the half-life is so low that real concerns about are you maintaining those therapeutic levels in the serum all the way through the case. Um, when people are much more used to the dosing intervals of cefazolam, and by doing cefazolam metronidazole, are you mitigating a lot of that issue? I think, uh, you know, another thing that we've talked about in our institution that I think is really valid um, and worth consideration is what's happening at your institution? And so, you know, we, uh, in because of this trial, actually, uh, we had our group pull our own NISQIP data, and that's, again, one of the real benefits of using this is, is something that we can immediately access and mm -hmm. is already being reported and looked at, hey, what are our rates look like mm -hmm. in terms of SSI? And we saw that our rates were at about 20%. And so we're already performing at about the level that they saw in the Piptasa group. And so is that because cefalosometrodizole is just as good as because of other things in our preoperative bundle that we're doing that are helping us get our SSI rates down to that level? Um, and to what degree, if we were to switch to so could we move that needle or not? Is 20% just a floor, given it's such a morbid, it's such a complex procedure that tweaking your perioperative antibiotics isn't going to get you much lower than that? Or is there still some real benefit to be gained by considering some broader coverage? Yeah, that's the uh, that's why question would help us answer whether or not we could apply it to our, our institutional uh yeah, procedures or not, I, I, I'm with you. It's just a you, you can't necessarily just say, oh, the odds ratio is 0.5, you know, 50% reduction of anything is is better. Uh, I, we don't know. I, I think this, you know, the the strength behind this study is multiple sites here, multiple types of patients, and uh, and so that may be the case that you know, for instance, if we just switched, it would be a difference. Uh, but I. I would be, uh, I, I can't imagine it would be a 50% difference, right? Like I think if anything, we could potentially make it, it would be interesting to see which patients we would reduce uh, their risk for surgical site infection uh, otherwise. And, you know, this enterococcus thing is really interesting to me. I think, you know, as a physician, you know, I think of myself as a clinician, I, I really don't pay much uh, attention to enterococcus in abdominal wounds, uh, I don't give as enough credence to it. And I think uh, it, it's not a very virulent organism. I think of it as a very sticky organism. So if it's in the blood, I'm, you know, there's a high likelihood that it's going to latch onto your piece of, you know, foreign body or, 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 uh, valve or something like that yeah it was just added to the typical organisms list for endocarditis it was well, recent uh great point yeah yeah great so point making us think about it or how it's a bit more in multiple big updates that are happening yeah, yeah so so why would it, all of a sudden now that we're covering the intercoccus would that drop i mean 50 percent like that's and quite frankly most of these infections that we treat yeah we actually may treat them with zosin but i don't know that that's 
you know, I, I, these infections are not all from enterococcus. And so uh, the the speculation that authors come up with is is weak, but there is some basic science data suggesting that certain strains of enterococcus faecalis have these collagenases that they produce that impede the anastomosis from healing. So we've got rat data uh, or data in rats where they actually expose them uh, to a surgery like this, uh, gave them suffoxetin and measured the, the, the amount of collagenase in enterococcus faecalis and specific uh, species and they saw that these 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 rats didn't you know the anastomosis broke down and so maybe there's something there with the enterococcus it's just it's a very long leap to say that the enterococcus is is why these this reduction is 50% that 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 is hard for me to wrap my mind around yeah i mean i think that's one of the big limitations they mentioned in the study in that they said they were unable to get perioperative cultures or postoperative cultures for the infections that occurred. Um, those aren't standardly, those aren't entered in a standardized way into the NISQIP database for them to be able to pull, which, gosh, if we saw that a large percentage um, in the Cefoxin group of the infections postoperatively that pre were prevented were intercarcus, then we'd actually have some evidence that we could add there, but we just don't have that yet. Yeah. So I, you know, to that end, do you think you we need that culture data before we really think about implementing a change? Or do you think, gosh, the strength of this data really speaks for itself there that we you wouldn't feel like you necessarily need that? I mean, I, I think it's certainly something to think about. There, there's no doubt about that. And, you know, practice changing to me doesn't mean necessarily we just copy whatever this protocol happened uh, to be in this particular trial and then just completely do it at our, our, our facility. I, I think it means... We, you know, even with the lowest of lowest infection rates, it's still one in five patients getting sick after these surgeries. Like if there's anything that we can, uh, you know, provide that can reduce this on a, a programmatic level, that the, the number of complications, I think it's worth considering. And so for us, we are going to sit down with the surgeons and our infection prevention colleagues and our quality improvement colleagues and and look at what are our goals uh, if we do something like switch our, our, our surgical prophylaxis to Zosin? And then what are the uh, potential adverse outcomes we'll be, look, we'll be looking for? And in, and in my mind, you know, as the infectious disease consultant that sees these patients in the, in the hospital, my concern is that when we give an antibiotic, a prophylactic antibiotic, we shape their microbiome. I mean, that, that's the point of giving a, 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 a prophylactic antibiotic is to reduce that inoculum size and shape that microbiome and such that there's less virulent organisms there. Well, if we are giving all these patients one or two doses of Zosin, and then it's still one in five patients go on to have infections, you know, what are we going to do for them at that point? These are the patients that are now going to have, you know, enterobacter cloaceae that are, uh, you know, have AMP-C producers. And, and uh, if it is enterococcus in there, then it's not like I can just jump to meropenem. I'm going to have to add vancomycin or even daptomycin on there to try to treat them. And so, uh, you know, just by, sh you know, sometimes, especially with antibiotics, you, you, you gain one thing and you lose another. And, and whether that, that, uh, 
you know, risk benefit ratio tips in your favor of reducing infections, then you know, maybe that's the right thing to do. And we just deal with the repercussions there. But there again, like I, I want to do it with my eyes wide open. And, and I think, you know, this, this may bring us to the end of our conversation, but I think if you're considering this in your institution, please reach out to Dason, uh, liaison and your infection prevention team. Uh, and some of you guys have DICON in there. And I think we should all come to the table and discuss this uh, and, and, and figure out what exactly we're going to try to tackle. What, what, what are we trying to impact? And then uh, what things can we look for to make sure we're not missing any adverse uh, effects that are uh, not acceptable? So you already mentioned a few of the implications and concerns about what could negative or adverse outcomes of switching to a broader prophylaxis be primarily, hey, if, if we're getting rid of some of these, when these patients do get infection, is it going to be something bigger, better, and scarier as a result? Um, other things that you'd be concerned about. Um, at least we saw good evidence that C. diff shouldn't blow up by switching to Piptazo, but uh, other things that would give you some pause before uh, implementing something like this? I don't know. I, I think uh, Zosin is is one we tend to think about as associated with more AKI or renal dysfunction uh, compared to cephalosporins like cefazolin, cefoxacin, even ceftriaxone. That'd be something I, I would want to think about, you know, on a on a grand scale. It's just uh, you just want to get at the why and what you're doing, and and make sure you intervene on on that particular sentiment as opposed to just doing this blindly. I mean, you know, it, it covers pseudomonas as well. It covers different uh, anaerobes, and <clears throat> and so I, it's just a it's a different player here completely. So one thing I think is definitely worth us discussing, and I think a question a lot of people will be asking is that, you know, the core principle, I mean, this is looking specifically at patients undergoing a Whipple, but this principle of, hey, patients who are getting a really high-risk surgery where you're seeing really high baseline levels of infection, should we be considering broader prophylaxis for those populations? Are there other conditions or surgeries that these data might apply to? Yeah, that, that's a great point. I'm glad you brought that up. I mean, that we saw that happen uh, to uh, erdipenem several years ago, right? There was a specific trial that showed that erdipenem might be of benefit. And uh, and then all of a sudden we see erdipenem being used for every general surgery uh, prophylaxis. Um, and I, I think that is a risk, right? The, the, the uh, scope creep. Um, if it's good enough for this particular complicated procedure, then it should be good enough for my, you know, diverticular surgery or something else. And uh, that that would be a potential disaster. We, we don't want to see Zosa out there for prophylaxis for all these procedures, especially all these colorectal uh, surgeries that occur. Um, and then we'd have a lot of uh, resistant bacteria on our hands. Um, you know, that's a great point. That that I think that probably in the back of my mind is the biggest fear of this this particular trial, and that's why I want to put hit, you know, I want to I'll admit it's practice changing, but I want to also hit the pause button. Let's let's sit and think about this um, before we just uh, empirically do it. Yeah, I appreciate you bringing that up. Yeah, and, and one thing that the authors brought up that I think is interesting is like, is there a potential middle path here so that you know rectal swabs um, and looking for screening for more resistant bacteria, 
um, or screening perhaps for colonization with, with particular agents is something we do already as part of our uh, prophylaxis guidelines for prostate surgeries. Mm -hmm. is, is that a model that we should be thinking about expanding to other forms of intra-abdominal surgery? Yeah, I, I think there is something like that we need to think about. But there again, that's a that's a high logistical resource ask to make sure we do that. Because once you do it, you have to do it, uh, you know, a standard operating procedure such that it each happens correctly with every patient. And then that information gets followed up <clears throat> appropriately. And so a, a lot of, you know, preoperative or, uh, you know, periop worlds uh, involving these patients may or may not be able to uh, incorporate this kind of level of nuance, but I, I think these are the kind of things that we should be asking and thinking about. And that, that's what we will, you know, this, this question is, is brought up like literally the day it was published, right. From our surgeons here and infection preventionists here. And so I, I think, uh, you know, we will have an in-depth discussion here to figure out, uh, what kind of things, uh, can be done, uh, to reduce the comorbidities associated with this surgery which is, is a good thing overall, right? Well, Schaefer, I think those are all the big questions and kind of talking points that I had really thought about in advance of this. Anything, any other closing notes that you'd like uh, us to end on to make sure that we're all thinking about? I don't think so. I mean, I, I, just to summarize, maybe it's just a, it, it is a, it, a very, you know, obviously significant result here, reduction of uh, complication, post-operative complications in a horribly comorbid, uh, horribly morbid procedure for patients that are very sick uh, with this, uh, with seamless dosing compared to cefoxetine. But there again, like, let's, let's not, let's not just apply what happened here and say, oh, this same thing will happen in our institution without having your eyes wide open and realizing, uh, let's compare apples to apples. And so, uh, again, please, please reach out to us uh, for assistance in, in, in this discussion. But it is certainly something that we should be discussing. These patients are sick and are worth thinking about. So exciting potential, but as with all of our stewardship and quality interventions, it's really hyper-local in terms of the, the situation that you have on the ground and making sure you're aware of your own data and how this may or may not apply is going to be essential. Yeah. It's always good and important good to, to remember. Well, thanks, Ray. Uh, and again, I really uh, had a good time with you this year, and I hope you uh, got something out of training and working with, with me on the wards with the stewardship rounds, and uh, really appreciate all your help with the newsletters this year and, uh, of course, this podcast. I think it's better because of you. So, oh, It's been an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to continuing to work on Yeah, you. I look forward to seeing how your career goes. 